Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, and we're going to get back into our study this morning, and we're going to be looking at the last part of chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, and just from the looks of it, you might think we're in for another two or three or four part series if it took us four messages to get up to this point in chapter two, right? We had four messages in verses one through 16. I'd really like to finish up this chapter this morning if possible and um, just kind of say it all in one sermon and, uh, and even get done on time. How's that? So you're like, that sounds great, but we'll be here till three this afternoon, right? Not necessarily. Let's see what we can do. But Romans chapter two, starting in verse 17, the Spirit of God said this through the Apostle Paul, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men but from God. God, we thank you for this rich study that we're in. And as we um, take apart these verses in front of us and uh, seek to apply them to our lives, where we know that we need your spirit to illuminate us, to understand and apply uh, this passage to our lives today. And I pray that we would see um, beyond the, um, the original historical context of, and the cultural context of, of the Jewish people and the law and circumcision to see how that applies to us today. And Lord, I would ask that if there's anyone who's sitting here this morning who has a false sense of security, that they, they think or assume that they're on their way to heaven when they're actually on their way to hell, that this message, this passage would be used by your spirit to convict them that they're trusting in something other than Christ alone for their salvation. And that today would be the day that they truly 
come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you are all aware of the fact that we live in the southwest region of what is referred to as the Bible Belt. And in fact, some of us pride ourselves in living in the Bible Belt. Well, I grew up in the northeast and spent 12 years of my life on the west coast where the spiritual climate is very different than it is here in Texas. People in New England um, tend to be more traditional, more stoical in regards to religion. It's very Catholic. Most of my buddies that I grew up with uh, went to the Catholic church and that's all they've ever known. Uh, Probably they're still going to this day um, because that's just what you do. You go to the church that your mom and dad went to and and, uh, um, you'll go to that church till the day you die. Or there's these congregational churches all over the place. Just as if you've ever traveled to the New England states, um, you'll see these little white churches with these little white steeples. They're on a lot of postcards. They're kind of picturesque. Of what you think of a New England village would be like. Um, well, those, most of those churches are all dead churches. Um, they were originally started by the Puritans, and they were solid Orthodox churches, but now they're uh, really benign. In fact, many of them are just historical landmarks. And no churches actually meet in that building. Well, in states like California or Oregon and Washington, there uh, is a much more liberal bent, obviously, and people tend to be indifferent when it comes to religion. But in, in both of those regions of the country, the Northeast and the West Coast, at least there's one thing that's clear. There's a very clear distinction between who is a believer and who's an unbeliever. Very few in those places claim to be a Christian if they're not really a Christian. However, that's not true here in the South. Pretty much everyone claims to be a Christian whether they are one or not. And since moving here some 20 years ago, I've grown accustomed to meeting folks who are absolutely convinced that they are on their way to heaven because of their religious affiliation, like their denomination or some other external religious activity like attending a church or being baptized or getting confirmed or giving to charity or serving at a, at, at a homeless shelter. And maybe like you, whenever I meet somebody for the first time, I, I pray that the conversation gets directed towards the things of the Lord and to spiritual matters. And, and, and I ask them if they're a Christian. And the typical response here in the Bible Belt is what? Well, of course. And my next question is, well, when did you become a Christian? And some of the typical answers I, I often hear are, well, you know, I've always been a Christian. Have you heard that one? Or uh, I was raised a Methodist. And in the back of my mind saying, so? (laughs) Uh, I've gone to the Baptist church all my life. My daddy's a preacher. That's one of my favorites. My daddy's a preacher. Or, you know, I believed in Jesus ever since I was a little kid. Or, you know, I was baptized when I was a teenager. Now, do any of those questions or or answers... Uh, answer the question I asked when they became a Christian? No. And see, whenever people say these kinds of things, I, I try to get them to be more specific. 
by saying, okay, well, so when were you born again? When did you see a change happen in your life? When did you stop being this way and start being this way? Obviously, my concern is that, that many people, particularly religious people, devout, sincere, orthodox people seem to be self-deceived. They have a false sense of, a, of eternal security. And it may be hard to, to conceive, but there are a lot of people going through life thinking that they're headed for heaven when in reality they're lost and they're headed for hell. That's what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, as he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, which was really a, a Christian manifesto, if you will, um, exposing the, the religiosity of the pharisaical system of religion, Judaism in the day of Christ, this outward religiosity and, and really what Jesus was desiring, which is true inward spirituality. Big difference between outward religiosity and inward spirituality. And so the Sermon on the Mount was all about that. You've heard it said this, but I say this. And he was comparing and contrasting this external religion with an internal commitment to Christ. And he ends the Sermon on the Mount with these words. This is Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I believe there will be many who stand before the Lord on the judgment day who won't believe their ears. They'll be shocked. This is not what they were expecting to hear. They thought they were a shoe in for heaven. And Jesus goes on, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. I believe that is a, a picture of eternal judgment. Those who will go to heaven and those who will go to hell. Now this may be difficult to do, and probably not well received if you do it. But I think the most loving thing that we can do is to be like Jesus, and that is to graciously confront those with a false sense of confidence and, and challenge them to examine the foundation of their confidence to make sure that they're truly saved by faith alone in Christ alone. In other words, what are you actually trusting in? What are you basing your hope of heaven on? Is it what you know? Is it what you do? Or is it based on what Christ has done? 
what you know Christ has done for you. By the way, if you want a helpful resource to um, engage this nominal Christianity that we all are a part of here in the Bible Belt, I would recommend a book by John MacArthur called The Gospel According to Jesus. And um, I don't know if he had the Bible Belt in mind when he penned that book, but I tell you what, it, 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 it hits the nail on the head. And, and I'm so thankful that I was exposed to that book early on in my ministry because I really feel like it prepared me to, to serve the Lord here in the South where, where there's so much Christianity in name only. Great resource. I'd encourage you to get it and read it. But John MacArthur in his commentary on Romans, Romans chapter two, said this, far from being cruel and insensitive... The Christian who exposes such false ideas of spiritual security does a great service to those he warns. If a person is to be commended for warning a family that their house is on fire or that a bridge they're about to cross might collapse under them, how much more is a believer to be commended when he warns the unsaved of their lostness and condemnation apart from Jesus Christ? He says this, no greater kindness can possibly be offered a person than showing him the way of salvation. But before he can have motivation for being saved, he obviously must be convinced that he's lost. And I think that's precisely what Paul was doing with the Jews in these verses. He was seeking to expose their false sense of spiritual security in order to help them see that despite their religious affiliation and religious activities as God's chosen people, they were just as lost as everyone else in the world. And apart from Christ, they were under God's condemnation. And as we've been learning from uh, the previous sermons in this chapter, the Jews back in Paul's day were very smug, very self-righteous, and they pridefully assumed that they would never be judged by God. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, they were the fuel for the fires of hell, for the flames of hell. And that's why they were created, was to fuel hell. See, in their minds, what set them apart from the Gentiles or non-Jews and made them immune to God's judgment was primarily two things. Number one, they possessed the law and they were circumcised. But just like many in our world today, they were self-deceived by their religious affiliation and their religious activity. And so Paul set out here in this passage to burst their prideful, presumptuous bubble, if you will, and just shatter their false security and confidence by dismantling the Jewish religion in the name of the gospel. He wanted them to know that it was that just because they possessed the law and had been circumcised, that was no guarantee that they were going to escape the judgment of God. And so here we have in this passage really a, a, a timeless antidote for, for spiritual self-deception for anyone in any time who's trusting in their religious heritage, their religious denomination, their religious knowledge, their religious activities, their religious ceremonies to make them right with God. 
And as we studied verses 1 through 16 together, we saw how Paul declared that the Jews were under God's judgment alongside the rest of mankind. Well, here in the rest of the chapter, chapter 2, he demonstrated why that was true. Namely, because they had failed to live up to their privileges and responsibilities as God's chosen people. You want to talk about epic fail? An epic fail, that was the Jewish nation. They failed to live up to their privileges and their responsibilities as God's chosen people. And so as we look at this passage, we could just divide it up into two sections or the way I've chosen to describe it as two dangers, two dangers that we must all avoid when it comes to where our security or confidence is regarding our salvation. In other words, what are you trusting in to get to heaven? Uh, First of all, we see the danger of false confidence based on what we know. That's verses 17 and 24. Again, the Jews possessed the law, but they failed to live it out. And then secondly, the second danger is is false confidence based on what we do. Verses 25 to 29, the Jews were circumcised, but they failed to live it out or live up to it, you could say. And again, Paul is, um, and we're going to see this over and over again in the book of Romans as we go through this letter, that Paul would anticipate how his readers would respond to what he had just written. So he was writing along and then he was thinking, okay, I guarantee you the Jews are going to be thinking this right now. And so I want to respond immediately to their reaction. And so I think at this point, Paul imagined that the natural objection or protest of the Jews would be something like this. Well, wait a minute, Paul, time out. You can't say to me that, or to us as Jews that we are no different than the Gentiles. We're Jews. We have the law. They don't. We're circumcised. They're not. How can you dis- disregard these, these, these special blessings or privileges that we've received from God which distinguish us from the Gentiles and protect us from God's judgment? And remember that Paul began chapter two by warning moral self-righteous people in general not to consider themselves less likely to be judged than the wicked that were described in chapter one. And again, we, 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 this hits home for us because it's easy for moral religious people to have a self-righteous, judgmental, condescending, look down our noses toward all the wicked attitude, Right? all these people who deserve to be punished by God. Well, back then, the Jews were the most moral religious people alive. And so Paul now left no doubt in anyone's mind that it was the Jews that he was specifically thinking of and referring to in this chapter, verse 17. But if you hear the name, bear the name, what? Jew. I'm talking about the Jews here. And and based on all that we know about the Jews, particularly the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees from from Jesus' interaction with them in the Gospels, they are the ultimate example of, of those who are dangerously, pridefully overconfident 
because they put their trust in what they knew and what they did to save them. And again, Jesus, man, he was taking no prisoners when he confronted these guys and exposed their, again, outward religiosity while at the same time encouraging inward spirituality. And and if you just go back to Matthew 23, just for a, a brief example, Matthew 23 is where Jesus exposed the Pharisees for who they were, the hypocrites that they were, and and he gives eight woes, starting in verse 13 all the way through verse 33. Let's just pick it up in verse 27 there, the last two woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, Jesus wasn't making any friends when he was calling their calling out the Jewish religious leaders as hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He goes on, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says again, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have partnered with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We would have received the prophets when they came, not like our ancestors. Verse 31, so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And then listen to verse 33, he goes beyond this hypocrite. If that wasn't enough, he calls them serpents. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? In other words, you guys think you're on your way to heaven when in actuality you are on your way to hell. Why? Because they wrongly assumed because of all that they knew and all that they did that they were going to heaven. And so just like Jesus, back in Matthew, Paul wanted his fellow Jews in Rome to know that despite all of its intellectual teachings and external ceremonies, Judaism wasn't enough to save them from God's wrath. And so he begins, first of all, by talking about how they had possessed the law but failed to live it out. And so here's the danger of false confidence based on what we know. Now again, the context, Paul just finished explaining how God was gonna judge every man based on what they did with the law. And we've all received the law. We may have not received it like the Jews did on the two tablets on Mount Sinai, right? We've received it Innately where? Remember? In our hearts. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And now Paul 
directly addressed the Jews who not only had the law written on their own hearts, they actually had the privilege of receiving and possessing the actual law. But they failed to obey it. And consequently, as we're going to see, it made them far more guilty than the pagan Gentiles who only had God's law in their hearts. I mean, you're doubly guilty, is what he's saying. And, and it really was because they possessed the law that every Jew knew they were privileged far above the rest of the people on the earth. And, and so Paul goes on to list here some of the things that every Jew prided themselves in and, and that in their mind set them apart from everyone else in the world and ensured that God would never judge them like he would the rest of the world. Notice he says, but if you bear the name Jew... I mean, Jews were extremely proud of this title. Many of them used it as kind of their last name. They would introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Ken Ramey, the Jew. They would make sure they fit that in there. They would want everybody to know that they were a Jew. They were one of God's chosen people. And rely upon the law. They relied on the fact that they possessed the law, which gave them a right standing before God. And, it, and that in itself provided them a free ticket to heaven. It says, Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Just because you have a copy of the Bible means you're going to heaven, not necessarily. You boast in God, he says. They, they, were bra they, they bragged about that they were God's favorites. That we're better than you. And notice he says in verse 18, and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. They were proud of the fact that they, that they could claim the law as their own, which gave them the knowledge necessary to make wise moral judgments and decisions unlike the foolish Gentiles. And this also put them in a position where they could teach others. Notice verse 19, and they're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. They were in the superior position because of their knowledge, what they knew of, of providing instruction and correction to the ignorant, to the immature pagans all around them. And then notice that last phrase, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. I mean, they knew they had the truth about God and about man's sin and, and how to be saved, but they squandered that truth by not applying it to themselves, by not living it out themselves. And despite these amazing privileges that Paul lists here, the Jews failed to put them into practice. They didn't practice what they knew and even taught to others. They didn't, as we often say, they didn't practice what they preached. They were what? Hypocrites. There's some questions on the application sheet this morning about hypocrisy and if there are any areas in your life Things that, truths that you know from God's word 
even truths that you might be teaching others that you're not living out yourself. If that's true, then the Bible says you're a what? A hypocrite. And so I hope that you prayerfully consider some of those questions and to ask the Lord to root out any hypocrisy in your life that no one could ever accuse you of being a hypocrite, saying one thing and, and doing something else. And, and by the way, if you're a parent, oftentimes that's the case in our home. It's our children that are the witnesses to our hypocrisy. No one else may see it but them. You might need to have a conversation with your kids this afternoon or maybe this week as you uncover those areas in your life that maybe you've demonstrated hypocrisy. But notice what Paul goes on to do next in verses 21 through 23. He, he asked a series of very direct, penetrating rhetorical questions that were intended to expose the hypocrisy of the Jews and humble them to the dust. Notice what he says in verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you not, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That last phrase about robbing temples could have been what the prophet Malachi talks about robbing God of tithes and offerings. Or as was the custom in those days, the Jews would pillage pagan temples and they would take out the, the idols and they would sell them for profit. Seemed like they were taking advantage of, of this to make money. And the point is that, that it was common knowledge that the Jews were guilty of the same sins that they abhorred in others and that they instructed others to avoid. Hey, don't do that. And they did it, any, they did it themselves. Don't watch that. Don't go there. Don't be around those. And, and, and they did it anyway, or, or they didn't do it themselves. Hopefully, as a parent, these words have never come out of your mouth or you never needed to say these things, do as I say, not as I do, Right? No, just do it because I said it, even though I don't do it. Some of you maybe are the product of a home where your, your parents expected you to go to church and they dropped you off at church, but they never went. And uh, if you're sitting here today truly saved, that's an evidence of God's grace that you were able to look past that hypocrisy of your parents. Paul was just pointing out to the Jews that how they lived didn't match what they said they believed. How about you? Is, does how you live match what you say you believe? And it really came down to, to verse 23. I mean, this last question served, I think, as the final nail in the Jews' whitewashed coffin. Notice what he says. You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? In other words, you boast in the law, but you break the law. And then Paul ended this 
cross-examination of the Jews with a scathing accusation in verse 24. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. In other words, you guys are making God look bad. And he was quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah 52, 5. God said this, those who rule over them, over the Jews, howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Ezekiel 36, 20, when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. In other words, the fact that God's people were um, defeated and enslaved and taken off into exile made God look bad. <laughs> They're like the enemy nations, gentiles. These are God's people. And look at them. We were able to defeat them and destroy them, and now they're sla our slaves. And they were blaspheming the name of the one true God because of the way the nation of Israel lived. In fact, you might remember that Nathan, the prophet, said something similar to David after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, her husband, to cover up his sin. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, Nathan said, by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, what you did, your sin, made a laughing stock out of God. God forbid that we would ever do anything that would bring disdain upon the name of the Lord, would cause people to be disinterested with, with him because of the way we act. I think this is so ironic when you think about it because God specifically blessed the Jews with all these privileges in order for them to reach the Gentiles and to help them see that, that he was the one true God and that they would come from all over nations, from all over the world, would come and worship the one true God. They would reject their, 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 their polytheism and all of their gods and their false religions and say, no, this is, there's only one true God and it's the God of Israel. And yet the, the glaring inconsistencies between what the Jews claim to believe and how they live their lives caused unbelievers to mock God. They didn't want anything to do with God. And so even though God had called them to reach and teach the pagan world, instead they just turned them off. They were the ones that God had chosen to love and win the lost, but instead they their loveless, arrogant, egotistical attitude ended up offending the lost. And the Jews were, were guilty of thinking too highly of themselves and thinking too poorly of others. And they, they looked down with self-righteous scorn on everybody else and the Gentiles knew it. They sensed it and they, they hated them for it. This was such a bad witness. 
I hope you can see the obvious application to us as Christians here that those of us who know the gospel unfortunately can be the same way sometimes. We can be very self-righteous and offensive to the lost. That we've been called to love and to lead to Christ. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Romans said this, quote, he said, whenever a follower of Christ feels superior, he should beware, for such an attitude is not a sign of God's grace. To come into a position of spiritual privilege only to succumb to a self-righteous arrogance indicates that one's soul is in great danger. He said, our familiarity with holy things must never give way to spiritual presumption." Again, the principle here is very simple. When Paul says the name of God is blasphemed among the angels because of you, listen, the, the world rightly judges the character of God by the conduct of those who claim to be his people. The world rightly judges the character of God by the conduct of his people. And it's only natural, makes sense, that unbelievers... conclude that, that God's people reflect their God. And I think that's why the number one excuse given by unbelievers as to why they don't go to church is because why? You fill in the blank. It's filled with a bunch of what? Hypocrites. We hear that all the time. It's a lousy excuse. I mean, whenever you hear that, all you need to say, hey, we got room for one more. So why don't you come to church with me this Sunday? Right, it's a cop out. But hey, guess, guess what? If the shoe fits, we need to wear it. Because when unbelievers see professing believers living sinful lives that are no different than anyone else in the world, they feel justified in concluding that Christianity is nothing but a, a bunch of hypocritical hogwash. Why would I need that? My life is no different, their life is no different than my life. And so those of us who boast about the importance of maintaining pure doctrine, which by the way, we're all about here at Lakeside, right? Maintaining pure doctrine. Now, well, you need to be careful to make sure we're also maintaining pure lives, amen? Because the world will see right through that. You may know the word of God very well. You may have been taught very well. You may, may have a lot of knowledge of God's word. The question is, <coughs> excuse me, are you living, living it out? If you're not, then you're making God and his word look bad. And so the first thing that Paul exposed here was the Jewish false sense of confidence based on what they knew. But then he goes on in verses 25 to the end of the chapter to warn them against their false confidence based on what they do. So based on what they know, 
right? Now it's based on what they do. And here he zeroes in on the issue of circumcision, that they were circumcised but failed to live up to it. And um, I think you're familiar enough with circumcision to know that the Jews felt secure that they would never, ever experience God's judgment because they bore physical proof on their body that they had been set apart by God as God's chosen people. It was like their business card. Here you go. Can't deny that. And throughout the Old Testament, they regularly referred to Gentiles as the what? The uncircumcised. David, when he went up against Goliath, called him the uncircumcised Philistine. You're going to let this uncircumcised Philistine talk about our God like that? And so in the Jewish mind, uncircumcised, uncircumcised meant unsaved. And conversely, circumcised meant what? Saved. And so they naturally assumed that circumcision sealed their salvation. In fact, one Jewish rabbi actually wrote in his commentary on the Pentateuch, on the books of, that Moses has wrote, the first five books of the Bible, that he said this, quote, no circumcised man will see hell. And so you can imagine that what Paul said here, wrote here in these verses, man, he really hacked some of the Jews off big time because there was a lot of them who misunderstood and misapplied the, the original purpose of circumcision. And in order to see that, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 17. Just real quickly, just go back to Genesis chapter 17 to see how circumcision was instituted by God through Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, as a symbol of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and in turn all of his descendants. This is Genesis 17, verse 9. The title in my Bible over chapter 17 is Abraham and the Covenant of Circumcision, but let's pick it up in verse 9. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, a servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is brought with money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." And so this surgical procedure that was performed on every Jewish boy was to serve as an outward sign that they were a recipient of all the covenant promises that God had made to Abraham and his descendants. And so ideally, according to what Moses recorded here in Genesis, that circumcision was intended to be a physical reminder that they belonged to God by virtue of the covenant that he had made with Israel and therefore they needed to remain committed to keep the covenant by 
by staying set apart from sin unto God. I think if there was a, maybe a, a modern analogy to this, it might be a wedding ring. A wedding ring. If you're married, right, you've got one of these on your finger. What is, why? Why do you wear one of these things? It's, it's a symbol of the covenant relationship between you and your spouse. It's a visual reminder that you made a promise, right, to be faithful to one person for the rest of your life. But if you don't keep that promise, then this means nothing. It's of no value. You might as well take it off. If you're unfaithful to your wedding vows, then your, your wedding ring is, is, is meaningless. And in the same way, if a Jew is unfaithful to the vows that he made to honor and obey God, his circumcision is meaningless. It's worthless. That's what Paul's saying here. For indeed, verse 25, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, if you stay true to the covenant. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, you might as well not have ever been circumcised. It doesn't matter. You're not living up to it anyway. And what Paul is saying is if you don't stay true to the promise you made to God, then it makes no difference in God's eyes whether you're circumcised or not. As a matter of fact, an uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the law is considered spiritually circumcised in God's eyes. Notice he says, verse 26, so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And what's more, he's that, that uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the law is qualified to judge a circumcised Jew who fails to keep the law. Talk about meddling in Judaism here. I mean, Paul was pushing all the buttons here. Verse 27 and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Paul's point is simply this. Circumcision doesn't justify a man before God. It's not about whether you've been circumcised or not. It's do you obey the law? Circumcision was originally intended by God to simply be an outward reflection of what is in a person's heart. I, I usually use this illustration in baptism class and I take my ring off and I put it on one of the teenagers and I said, hey, now are you married? I, I, I just gave you a wedding ring. Are you married? And they're like, no. Well, that, the point is just because you put on a wedding ring, right, doesn't make you married. The, the ring is simply an outward symbol that you are married. In the same way, circumcision, just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're saved, right? But it could be an outward reflection that you love God in your heart and are committed to obey him. 
Notice what he says in verses 28 and 29. And these are very interesting verses here. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul's saying, hey, you know what? What makes you a Jew is not that you're circumcised in your flesh. What makes you a Jew is that you're circumcised in your heart. And we see this. This is not a new concept. Paul didn't just come up with this. The Jews should have been familiar with this because all throughout the Old Testament, God made it clear that he cared more about their hearts, what was going on in their hearts. Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise your heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Jeremiah 9, 26, for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Ezekiel 44, verse 9, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary. You're like, well, Ken, I'm not a Jew, so can we get beyond this whole circumcision thing to kind of where I'm living today? Okay, we'll turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter two. Again, Paul writing to the believers in the church in Colossae. Notice the reference he makes to spiritual circumcision here. This is Colossians chapter two, verse 11. Paul says, in him, in Christ, you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. Notice verse 11. And in him, you were also circumcised. You're like, wait a minute. I don't remember that happening when I got saved. Well, no, you were circumcised with a circumcision made what? Without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Pretty amazing that Paul described our salvation as being spiritually circumcised. And again, a reminder here that it's not about what we do that makes us saved. It's what God does in us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, again, to make this relevant to us today, all we have to do is to substitute circumcision for any type of religious ritual or 
ceremony that we might perform thinking it will somehow secure our salvation. The Jews, it just happened to be circumcision. That was their little rite, their little ceremony. Get circumcised and you're saved. Well, how about today? Well, join this church. Become a member of this denomination. Take communion. Get baptized. Be confirmed. These are all religious activities that many people trust in. They're counting on to get them to heaven. Well, I did all these things. I, I checked off all those boxes. I'm good to go. Well, that might be the case if God only cared about externals. But God doesn't care about externals. He cares about what's going on in your heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, right? But God looks at what? He looks at the heart. And so back in Romans chapter two, Paul wanted to make it clear, listen, someone who is a Jew outwardly, he's saying, who are these outward Jews? These are the, this is anyone who is a physical descendant of Abraham who has been circumcised. Now that's somebody who's a Jew outwardly. They, they have the mark of circumcision on their body. But a Jew inwardly, which by the way is what we're going for here, it's not enough to be a Jew outwardly. No, you need to be a Jew inwardly. A Jew inwardly refers to anyone who is a true child of God based on their inward commitment to follow and obey Christ. Look at Romans chapter four, and Paul's gonna, this is not the last time we're gonna talk about this touchy subject of circumcision here. Chapter four, verse 16, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, to the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. And you may not be a Jew by birth, heritage, right? But you are part of the faith of Abraham, right? If you believe in the Messiah that was promised by God to Abraham to come through the Jewish nation, Jesus the Messiah, guess what? You're part of this, right? You're those who are of the faith of Abraham. How about Galatians chapter three, verse 28? Interesting verse here. Galatians chapter three, verse 28. We're all familiar with verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, again, I don't think Paul was teaching that all true believers are Jews or that the church is the new Israel. We need to keep a distinction here in our minds. I think he was simply saying that believers are heirs of the spiritual blessings that were promised to Abraham's descendants. And a true Jew is one that is praised by God because their heart has been transformed by his spirit rather than someone who's praised by men for all their outward religious acts. That's what he's saying. He is a Jew who's one out, out, uh, inwardly and circumcision is that of which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. I don't know if you've ever 
observed Orthodox Jews performing their religious duties, particularly at the Wailing Wall. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you don't, you don't have to be there. You can see lots of pictures. You can watch videos of this. Uh, but, but I've actually stood there at the Wailing Wall a number of times and witnessed the devotion of these Orthodox Jews. I mean, they appear to be extremely religious, extremely spiritual as they're praying at the wall for hours as they have their little, little desk set up. They bring their little desk and sit there and they study, they read the Torah, the law, and they recite it and they say it out loud and they memorize it and they quote it. And it's just this cacophony of praying and, and, and quoting scripture and like, wow, this is amazing. Look at this. And they look so spiritual. And you think, well, how could God not look down and, and, and praise them for their devotion? But all these things are merely what? External. Nothing has happened in their heart. And if they're not what we refer to as a Messianic Jew, which simply means that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that God promised to send, and they've not placed their trust in him alone for their salvation, listen, they're not a real Jew in God's eyes. You're like, wait a minute, they look like they're a Jew. They look really Jewish to me. And not in God's eyes, they're not. And the sad thing is that they're headed for hell. Even though they're some of the most religious people on the planet. Why? Because salvation results from the work of God's spirit in the heart. Not merely associating with a particular religious group or participating in a bunch of religious activities. Jesus couldn't have made this any clearer when he had that midnight conversation with a Jewish rabbi named Nicodemus. In John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I mean, this was, this was the chief teacher of, of, of Israel, and, and he was confused by this concept of being born again, this, this internal work of God. And so Jesus tried to explain further. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. The Spirit of God must regenerate your heart. Do a work in your heart. And Paul describes this work in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by, here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, what is your hope in? 
Is it what you know, it's in what you do, or is your, is your hope in Christ? The only way that you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven is if you have been born again, truly born again by the Spirit of God. And our hope and our confidence must be in what Christ has done for us, not in what we do for Christ. So I ask you, have you been born again? Do you understand this work of the Spirit of God inside of you? Or has your relationship with the church and God been merely external up to this point? Just going through the motions, doing, kind of jumping through the hoops, but there's never really been a change in your heart. Whenever someone wants to join our church, we have them go through a membership process and there's really only one thing that we want to know before someone joins this church and that's if they know for sure that they're truly saved and they're on their way to heaven. That's all we care about. Do you know for sure that you are saved and that you're on your way to heaven? Because if you're not sure, we can't be sure. <laughs> so in order, for, in order for us to be sure, you need to be sure. And so we ask a couple questions on our membership application. And those of you that have gone through membership, you might remember these questions that we ask you to answer. And they're questions that you've probably all heard before. But here are the questions. Number one, if you were to die today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? And that's not where we end the question. We say, if yes, on what is your hope and confidence based? Sure, you may say, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. Well, okay, why? What are you hoping in? What are you, where is your confidence in? And then the second question is, if God were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say to him? Again, hypothetically, you get to heaven, he's standing there, hey, why should I let you into heaven? It's really a question just to discern, expose, what are you trusting in? What are you relying on for your salvation? And if we see people write down anything related to their religious affiliation or their religious activities, that's a warning sign for us. That's a red flag for us. What we want to see is, I don't deserve to get to heaven. I don't deserve for you to let me in. It's based on your grace and your mercy through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm trusting in alone. It's the only thing I got. The only hope I got is what you did for me through Christ. Because it was left up to me, no matter how religious I was, I'm still going to hell. See, true salvation is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And Paul said it well in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your head. No, it says believe in your heart that God raised him for that you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Every human being, no matter how religious they may be, 
will be eternally lost unless they come to the realization there is absolutely nothing they can do to make themselves right with God. And so they believe in their heart that Jesus lived, he died, he rose again in order to provide the righteousness that we all need to be accepted by God into heaven when we die. Paul knew what he was talking about. Whether the Jews in Rome knew it or not, those in the church in Philippi knew because this was Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter three, verse two. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Listen, I had a pretty sweet spiritual resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. I had done it all. I had this stellar religious business card But as you know, he went on to say, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I'm suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, I'm going to heaven not because of all this stuff I did as a devout Jew. I'm going to heaven because of all that Christ did for me on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's boldness in confronting the Jews and really Judaism in general, and not just Judaism, but every religious system that man has ever devised. And we've come up with a lot of them, ways to try to get right with you. But Lord, none of them are good enough. And that's why you sent your son Jesus to live and die in our place. And you raised him from the dead to show us that you accepted his life and death as payment for our sin. And that if we place our faith in him, we can have his righteousness credited to our account so that we can have the hope of heaven because we have the robe of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in each heart here. Lord, that no one would leave here with a false sense of security thinking they're on their way to heaven when they're really not and that they would just see the beauty and the power of Christ and that your spirit would accomplish 
his regenerating work in their heart, granting them repentance and faith so that they can know for sure that they're going to heaven based on what your word says, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.